Everybody, welcome to another installment of Show to Be with Mike G, the show of life, the show of Santa Fe, Texas, Bacardi, legacy composition, the military, and so much more today with the Houston native, the Houston legend himself, Mr. Chris Morris, a recent national finalist for the Bacardi Legacy Tournament, Tour de Force, whatever you would like to call it. We sat down here recently to talk about his career that spanned lots of different industries. He has been in the military, he's been working in warehouses, he was a composer, he was in the metal band. There's so many different things, so many different components to Chris, and he has the time and finds the creative space in his mind to make some amazingly delicious bitters. So, without further ado, I hope you guys enjoy this great chat with Chris Morris. So far out of like music, by the time I actually started bartending, like I tend to think of it much more as like a glass of wine. And yeah, like, tell me, tell me what's the approach there then? Like, because it's it's all about like all these different elements and these flavors, elements and and balance, right? Which like you I mean you you get from chords, but like even with triads, because then you would like extend it and like you have your your seventh and your your sixth, and like at yeah. that point I'd be like then I'd be thinking of drinks like emotionally. Ah, and just wait, like, there's nothing wrong with be, that though, is there? Yeah, there's not. It's just not how I actually approach drinks. Yeah, like. I don't think there are like happy drinks and sad drinks and really? Locrian. Well, there have been plenty of Locrian drinks, which is <laughs> just terrible and Dude, there are, and, and never reach resolution. Yeah. I guess would be a yeah. There's Ionian drink. drinks and basic bitches of drinks. Yeah. Really, you know there are. Yeah, it's been an interesting thing when we that'll, kind of that'll, be a, that'll be a seminar one day, like the seven modes of of craft. Cocktails. If you could, I mean, think about that. That's kind of a now it's a hell of a lot of modes. But if you could do seven ways, seven chapters of drinks, it's kind of an interesting thing. So we were talking about this. The name Chris Morris, when you Google, it's quite vague. And we could talk about your distilling career at Brown Foreman. However, that would lead us astray. But this whole thing, this is the kind of the nice thing, is that you are a Houston guy. You're a Houston native. Now, this is what they say about you. Even though you grew up, you say, south of Houston in yeah. Santa Fe, which I've never been to Santa Fe, Texas. Uh, it's a little small town of about... I mean, I was there about nine thousand people. No kidding. I think my my high school class was about three hundred. What What do you? I ask this question of everybody, but on a weekend, how do you get into trouble in Santa Fe, Texas? Usually on a tractor. <laughs> it's like footloose. <laughs> it's like footloose. Is it really like? Please tell me. I, like you, <laughs> you laugh, man. We legit um, every year we host what's called a ride your tractor to work. Or ride your tractor to school day. Really? Which is like all your football players are like, they literally like don't drive their car. They roll in on their John Deere tractors and poke, like park them in the parking lot. Is there nothing more prototypically Texas than that? It, yeah, no, exactly. And like we even joke about our um, like our school fight song. Okay, what's that? Like I don't know the real lyrics to it, but I know what we always sang. So the, the premise is there's a, a park in Santa Fe called Rungi Park. Okay. Like our school fight song, we used to always joke the lyrics were like, We're from Santa Fe, we're not very smart. We drove our John Deere's right through Rungi Park. I mean, I like it. I, I, I can sing along. I just, you guys are so self effacing. It's amazing for a small town to yeah. admit that you like your tractors. Oh, yeah. You're not very smart. Oh, yeah. But no. that doesn't seem true because you seemingly, Air Force takes creme de la creme, right? So yeah. you probably were a pretty good student. Oh yeah, like I was, I was ninth in my class with taking oh, really? the with doing the absolute minimum. Yeah, like I literally designed my entire like high school path to like not take the hard classes. So, right. like, I did, like I got through like algebra two, which I need to do, and I'm like, all my friends are doing pre AP like pre calculus. Pre cal, yeah. I'm gonna go take AP European history. <laughs> it's more exciting anyway. Yeah, we I mean we played a lot of chess. Like <laughs> really? Yeah, quite literally. That's like, pretty brilliant. Yeah, like. We'd get done, like, our reading for the day, and we'd have, like, 20 minutes left. Like, we'd all bust out, like, chess boards. So what other kinds? All right, all right. I don't want to paint these things. I'm trying to make too many assumptions. You're a smart guy. You're playing chess. You're in small-town Texas. 
Were you reading horror sci-fi? No. Okay. Were you watching Star Wars and Star Trek? Which I was. It's, it's very self-evident here behind me. Uh, I didn't really get into sci-fi. I was more into fantasy. Like okay. Bob, What's Bob, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings kind of guy. Power metal. Power metal. I like it. Like one of the first CDs I ever owned, Rhapsody's Legendary Tales. What is that? What's that all about? Oh, man. It's I don't like, even heard it. So Rhapsody is this band out of Italy. And like it's everything that was like great about like 80s speed metal. Okay. Yangui like, style. But with, like, what's that? Yangui. Remember Yangui yeah. Mouse? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like very much in that style, but with like vocals about like dragons and like keyboard solos That's and like amazing. going on a quest to recover the sword. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Like they have their albums are literally called like. Let's see, they have one that's like Emerald Sword, the power of the dragon flame. Like it's, it's just very like, Final Fantasy. I it's just, just over the top production. Yeah. Or like one of my favorite albums of that period was a a band called Blind Guardian. They're out of Germany. Um, really well respected uh, uh, frontman named Kai Boon. It was called Nightfall in Middle Earth. Okay. And it was literally like an hour long power metal interpretation of the Silmarillion. Really? Yeah. Well so how does that? I like that I've never met someone that was into fantasy, fantasy speed metal. Speed metal is fair. Is that a fair? Yeah. Way to go? Okay. Oh, man. I, I used to, when I was really young, I was like 20, 21, I actually like wrote metal reviews. And I was, I categorized. did? I categorize everything. Oh, yeah. I, I had an address. Uh, my online handle at the time was Spinal. Spinal? Reverend Spinal. Are you still a metalhead? Um,. Not so you, much these days. Did you ever have long hair like metalheads? Yeah. You did. Uh, I mean, I actually had like the absolute worst haircut. Okay, so. I no, think. I got to hear. I have, I, because I've got no picture. He, he may have a picture, but. Uh, I, no, I, I do have a picture. It, <laughs> it, it was basically like the reverse mullet. Like it, was party, okay, okay. it was party in the front and business in the back. Kind of like the Misfits thing almost? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like it was, it was a straight devil lock, but with like. Compl- oh. I have it somewhere. Yeah. I mean, this is deep in boom. The- Holy shit! Yeah. So I, no one should now. I think everybody should see this. But the <laughs> fact that I've had the privilege of seeing this, if this is not public, this is a fucking incredible picture. Yeah. You're like a refined dude with a vest now. Yeah. And now you're looking at this picture. You could have fronted the misfits. Yeah. Or Cro- maybe even Cro Max. Some of these artists. <coughs> older oh yeah, no. Punks, like, right? I was, I was a big punk head in high school. Like corduroy jacket with the like sleeves cut off and like. I took Sharpies and like, you know, drew my anarchy signs and and and, and, and like I much more wanted to be Jello Biafra. I was gonna say bananas in the ass are not an easy thing to accommodate in front of a crowd. I don't know how he did it. Yeah, but he did it pretty all, all the time. But Jello never really had a big drug problem like Gigi. Yeah, right. So it's a little cleaner, I guess. Yeah, and well, the thing I appreciate like Gigi was all like shock factor. Where like Dead Kennedy, Dead Kennedys were one of the first punk bands I ever got into just because like so politically charged and so intelligent like the the way they wrote yeah and like he had just that weird distinctive voice oh man it's almost shrill yeah times. so west coast punk guy or east coast punk guy <coughs> um that's a big question i think it is i like it all man okay that's like, fair I, yeah like i like everything from like that like east coast hardcore like that whole agnostic front sick yeah. of it all all the way to like the you know the guys on the the West, like anti flag, yeah, rancid, yeah. all those guys. Like, I love it all. It's a good mix. Well, so then we've painted this very brilliant, insightful picture of you as a rebel, as a guy who can really process a lot of information at once. Hence, speed metal. It's not easy to understand, especially if you're a musician and you're compositional. Yeah. But so this whole thing, the expectation of going to school, because you had it all, right? You're a smart guy anyway. Yeah. Was, what was the family's expectation about you? You got to go down that path, you got to go to college. Uh yeah, it was you got to get out of our house and go and get <laughs> and go and get a scholarship and yeah. go to college. Any brothers or sisters? <coughs> I have a younger sister. Younger yeah. sister, okay. But they're like, "Chris, sorry man, but you're about of age. Go on your own." No, like I mean, I was uh, like always planning on going to college. That's why yeah. I put so much time into like planning out my high school years, like make sure I graduated with honors, right. so like I had good applications. Um so a planner, like kind of making yeah. sure things turn out. Well. And now, I mean, they didn't turn out exactly how I planned because I'd never anticipated actually going to school for music. Yeah. That was something that like really just developed really in my senior year of high school because we got our first music theory class. Uh-huh. We had a new band director that year. And we'd been like, hey, like we'd be really interested in like really learning about like music theory. Sure. He's like, if you get me 15 people, I will get you your class. Oh, no kidding. 
So like I I took up the reins and the cause and got him his fifteen people on the dot and he got me in my class. Like the first semester of my high school years were like complete cakewalk. Cakewalk. Okay. I, we had we did a block schedule, so we only had four classes a day. Right. So I had an open first block. So I'd always show up with kolaches. <laughs> I had music theory second, then lunch, band. And then two days a week, I took a dual credit government class at our local junior college. And that's it. So three days a week, I showed up for music theory and band and went home. That's amazing. Well, what was compelling about music theory for you? Uh, just really kind of digging deeper into like this thing that I'd been doing for like seven years. Yeah. And uh, our final exam on there was basically you had to create like this, I was like 32 bar mm-hmm. piece um, and like. You know, you, like, and the, you did it in baby steps over the course of the semester. Like, you fleshed out your melody, and then you figured out your your chord structures right. underneath, and then you arranged it. Mine was done in six weeks. You just had it, yeah, because like I I had shown an interest in it, and my uh, I think we pirated a copy of Finale at the time, so I was like <laughs> getting in there and playing around with it. And, like, yeah, that's what I did when I went home. I was like, all right, like, I'm gonna work on this thing. I had like a really awesome melody that I loved, and I like, just knocked it out. And so I spent like the rest of the year just like learning advanced music theory on the side and then just like flushing that out and just turning in the assignments on this piece that were already done. And then we got done with uh, that class. My band director comes up to me and he's like, Hey man, he's like, if you're interested, I'd love to have you take your piece, extend it out into a full composition. Yeah. Get a, a committee of your peers and perform it at our spring concert. Wow. And I was like, all right, like what, cha- challenge accepted. That's like, let, amazing. Like, yeah. let's go. Let's have some fun. And so, like, literally just rounded up anybody, arranged it for who would come, and, like, got up there and, like, conducted my first piece. Was like, it strings or horns or both? Uh, it was both. Oh, wow. It was strings, horns, and full percussion. Jeez, that's brilliant. Yeah, the marimba player's, like, wrists no doubt hurt because yeah. they had this, like, really syncopated rhythm underneath. Like, bum 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 And they're just like, bum 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 with, like, four sticks. Does this kind of, like, intense understanding and passion for music, does that <coughs> does it come from your family at all, where you were the first guy? Like, oh, no. Mom played it, but my, my family life makes zero sense to what I do now. That's crazy. Like, my mom was huge on, like, Mariah Carey uh-huh. and, like, Whitney Houston and like listening to like quad CD DJs and things, <laughs> things like that. We weirdly had like three iced tea albums for yeah. no reason. <laughs> uh, a lot of MC hammer and vanilla ice growing up. Uh, these are, these are great things though. Yeah. I mean, they're all great things. Like when you look back at it, but yeah. like my foray into like metal and then later jazz and now like bluegrass and old country, like it makes absolutely no sense. Like there was no drinking in my house when I was growing up. Really? Like so many people against that, it or just not a thing. That just not a thing. Yeah, uh, my dad was very pro for it when he was in the army. I would imagine as so. I, as I understand, I actually recently got to gift him a bottle of what he drank when he was in the army. No he, kidding. You care to share what he drank in the army? Osbach. Really? Yeah. I'm not familiar with that. Actually, it's a German brandy. Ooh. Yeah, because uh, like when I learned it was in Germany, I was like, ah, too much Jaeger, yeah. And he's <laughs> like, it was actually Osbach. And I was hanging out with him. One day he works in car dealerships. I was yeah. hanging out. My car was getting serviced, and I was like talking about it. He's like, "Yeah." He's like, "I've asked like the people at like Specs, like you know, I'd like to get a bottle for like old times' sake." He's like, "They don't know what I'm talking about." I'm like, "Yeah, it's because you're asking people at Specs. Like, <laughs> like they've they've got like three bottles they're supposed right. to sell." I was like, "I'll be right back." And I like, took his loaner car, went to the Specs two doors down, and or no, I got my car back, went to the Specs two doors down, walked in, Brandy Isle, Osbach, twenty three dollars. Drove back, like put it on my dad's oh, desk. Man. He's like, "Oh my god, are you serious? Did you guys share a sip together?" No. Is that ever gonna happen? So for me, that's. I don't know. Like I don't most... know, man. Like that bottle might still be unopened. Really? Yeah, he, he drinks a lot of Moscato with his oh, new wife now. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's not so bad. Did you get him some Pisco then? So this tastes like it. If you were to put this in a still, right? No. <coughs> Getting yeah, some dirty, I know, right? Bread. But yeah. yeah, like he he had a big drinking problem when he was in the army. He mm. you know woke up in a tree. In a church parking lot, <laughs> I was like, "Tell me it wasn't Sunday." He goes, "No, it wasn't." <laughs> but like no that, one there to point. But like that's when he like finally had to draw the line. Yeah, and like the only drinking in my house growing up was New Year's Eve. Yeah, my mom would have her one shot of Cuervo Gold. Nice, and my dad would have a seven and seven. Amazing. And that was it. Really. And like Man. there might be like a stray Bud Light in the fridge from when like one of the aunts or uncles yeah. came over. But like that's it. 
and nobody was ever against it. There was no like we weren't taught that like alcohol is this demon. It's just nobody in the family really drank. Right. And it was kind of like, like this, the way that you come across metal. No one's yeah. listening to power metal. Yeah. It's like I had this like cool wine career. I didn't taste wine until I was twenty one. That's kind of incredible, though. Yeah. So this, but this going back to the compositional piece, you seem to have a knack for it. You understand instrumentation. That's great. So you yeah. go to school for it. There's a college in Santa Fe. Is that correct? Uh, no, it was. I went to college in East Texas. East Texas. Tyler. Oh, Tyler. Okay. Yeah. So Ty, Tyler Junior College, because they were the only ones that gave me a full ride scholarship. Yeah. And money talked more than location. Well, of course it does in this industry now. Too. <laughs> You're going to follow the money, whether it's brand or behind a bar, right? But this passion for music was it stifled at some point because at some point the air force introduces itself as well your dad's an army guy you have this opportunity with the air force uh yeah so i mean what happened we we'd been like we'd been playing we you know on that that underground show grind and yeah. you know playing dallas and austin and everywhere in houston that wouldn't like accept us yeah. um and eventually we got a call um this pr agency like yeah like you know, the so-and-so, and we're like, yeah, and they're like, we, okay, we represent this, this band, a uh, client of ours called Testament. We're like, <laughs> we're quite oh, familiar. Man. Yeah. Uh, and they're like, uh, you know, we've, we've heard your material. We're putting together a, a three-week tour of the East Coast. We want to know if you guys would be interested. To tour with Testament? To tour with Testament. Oh, shit. And we're that's like, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like, we'll quit our jobs. <laughs> we'll sell everything right yeah. now. And they're like, all right, we'll call you back with the, the details in a couple hours. And they called us back. And the details were we were to provide a $10,000 check up front for tour expenses. What? And provide our own transportation. Why don't you just buy, like, pay for it yourself? Don't let them do it for you, right? Yeah. And we never practiced again. Oh, shit. Like, there was just this understanding in the room of like, all right, we did it. We made it. We got the offer we were looking for. And... One of the things I like to say in life is like you won't ever find your true passion until you have to sacrifice for it. Yeah. And so like when we came to that wall and we had to make that sacrifice, and in, in this case a monetary sacrifice, we just weren't willing to do it. And there was this mutual understanding of like, if this is what the future holds, it's not worth pursuing. Like, wow. well, let's, let's go our separate ways. Like, let's. Some of us will go form other bands. Some of us will probably like burn out, like I did, and like. Yeah you know, get out of it. And like, I wound up, you know, playing in bands again a couple of years later, but it took a couple of years to kind of recover and be like, okay, like that was it. Like this is, this is that side of the industry. But we knew there were, that there were festivals. Cause we looked at playing things like Milwaukee death fest and like, right. they're pay to play festivals, right? Like, you know, they, they give you tickets and you have to sell tickets for them. And yeah, like, that determines that. like your billing slot. And we're like, uh, we never were about that life. Yeah. We never did any of it. And so, like, we just had this this amicable break. Huh. We are just, like, done. So then what is introduced in your life in that point? Something's going to probably fill this gap. Not intentionally, but just by the nature of things. Yeah. Um, really, at that point, like, I was just working, playing a lot of Magic the Gathering. <laughs> you know Jarrett Pena? Uh, I don't. So you guys should get together. He's a, <laughs> ma- he's a massive fan of magic the gathering i don't get it because i was too busy i don't know what the fuck i was doing probably watching david lynch movies yeah like that but yeah so this is a good thing perhaps there needs to be a club (laughs) a gathering oh we haven't we haven't haven't played in years yeah like it's way too expensive is it really oh god like we were playing like a really great golden age like i actually like i was relatively successful doing it because no matter what i do like i'm i'm going to strive for excellence and i'm going to like find a way to compete okay and just like grind it out. So like, we were literally traveling around like every weekend, going to like pro tour qualifiers and like grand prix trials. Yeah. So we're in like, we're in Austin one week, Houston one. Then we're in Dallas. We're in OKC. We're driving out to New Orleans, and this is like every week or two, we're just driving around doing these. I things. didn't even understand that there's a tour circuit for this. Oh thing. yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your I wife's was not in your head one, too. This is so. One thing I got to point out is off the mic. Samantha, your wife is here. Yeah. Both supporting and shaking her head at certain things that you <laughs> say. There's thumbs up moment here, and then there's like, oh fuck, really, Chris? Do you really want to talk about that? <laughs> but that's a good thing, and I want to. We'll talk about marriage here shortly because being in the industry obviously puts a lot of stress on things. In oh that yeah. Respect. But okay, so the Air Force piece. I'm still curious how this comes in for you. We talk <laughs> about. Uh, so it comes in. I'm. Uh, I was just kind of floating around, like I was. I was still trying to break into like my dad's industry, like. 
cars are working in like parts warehouses. Yeah. That's partially why I had that really awful haircut. Okay. Is like I worked in warehouses in Houston, Texas. They're 110 degrees. Yeah, it okay. sucks no matter how much AC you have. So like, I wasn't willing to fully commit to like long hair. Right. But unless you're Frank Mullen from Suffocation, bald dudes look really stupid headbanging. <laughs> so I wanted long hair to have something to headbang. Oh, so so hence, so hence like the shaved head devil lock combo. To get some nice updrift in the back to cool things down. <coughs> it still give you something to flail. Yeah. And, and uh, I wound up losing a job and I, I needed money. And uh, a friend of mine, her brother was working construction. Mm. And he's like, oh, I can get you a construction job. It'll start at $15 an hour. I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. That's a lot of money. Yeah, and uh, I'll never forget. I show up for that first time, and we're all in like our our meeting. I got my you know new hard hat and my, my tools. <laughs> looks really funny when you say it now. But uh, <laughs> eventually, once your career is done, you will have been all of the village people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't think with my background, I get to be a cop. Well, just wait. I, wait I know it. most of them. I, yeah, I know the Indian. See, there you go. It's yeah. easy. I don't know if you know uh, Peter Yonke from Tongue Cut Sparrow. Oh, uh, no. I know the name. I haven't met him. Yeah, he was our high school mascot. Are you kidding me? Yeah, he had like long flowing locks and a motorcycle. And every Friday night, he was dressed as an Indian with no shirt on. Yeah. like the, Nothing but a vest. Like John Redcorn from King of the Hill. That's what comes to mind, actually. Yeah. yeah but that's, yeah. well, it's incredible. Lighter shirt. Lighter yeah. shirt. <laughs> of Indi- a Native American, rather. Yeah. Well, so the construction piece, this is a formative thing for you? Uh, yeah, because it sucked. Okay. But no, so going back to what I was saying, like I, I remember showing up for the, the first day and we're having our meeting and they're like assigning crews, like, you know, you, you with you, you with you, you with you, you're like, we were putting up street lights. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy looks around, he's like, yeah, just let you know, boys, we got, uh, we got a lot of projects coming up. We got some work, we got some work in corpus. We got some work, uh, you know, out, out in Austin. Like, make sure you update your, your POs mm-hmm. and, you know, get all your paperwork in line. And I'm like, <laughs> it's funny. You made a parole joke and everybody else is taking notes mm. and I'm not laughing. And I'm like, oh, that's a legitimate thing. All these guys have records. Mm. And so like, I worked that and I was working a, um, a job down in Corpus Christi. And I was like, I was just looking around. I'm like, this is not how I envisioned this turning out. And I was like, sitting in class was like a way more cool thing. And I'm like, I'm going to go talk to these military guys and see yeah. what they can do. Like, like, let's go travel. Let's go have some fun. So I originally interviewed with the Navy and took all my testing with them, uh, which did not work. There are not a lot of jobs for a colorblind sailor. Weirdly. You're colorblind? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, like the color purple does not, exi- like, does not exist to me. You're kind of – it's a great, great movie, Chris. You should <laughs> – <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's a wonderful movie. Spielberg <laughs> – Whoopi Goldberg, she's, I think she won an Academy Award for it. Anyway, <laughs> so that's beyond the point here. Yeah. But so, so you can't see. So the Air Force will be okay with that? Uh, yeah, I just had much more opportunities. So like when I when I went and talked with like the the Navy recruiters, uh, they took me in. They you know gave me my ASVAB. Like I aced it like a 97. And they're yeah. like, you can you can go right. You're like, we're going to set you up to take our, nu- our nuclear entrance exam. Wow. And I'm like, this sounds intense. Yeah, it does. And I suck at math. So I'm going to call my friend and figure it out. But they're like, yeah, like just do this, do your four years. Like you can, you can choose to go out in the subs. You get hazard pay. Do your four years. You're gonna get out. You're gonna get four figures right out with a five figure signing bonus. Nice. Like, people want these guys in the industry. And I was like, yeah, like and even if you mess up the nuclear entrance exam, you can go into AECF, Advanced Electronics and Communication. Okay. So like go into that, do your four years, six figures right out. Like basically guaranteed if you don't continue your military career i'm like yeah this sounds awesome and so i go home and i'm researching these things and they all have this little like small print that says requires normal color vision oh no so i go back into my recruiter office i was like hey man i was like researching all like the the nuclear job codes and i noticed it has these things and like yeah I'm a little, you know i'm a little colorblind and they're like no it's it's like really easy like this they just give you this test it's like a field of dots and like there's a number and like you just tell them what number it is i'm like yeah i've done that i'm terrible at it i'm absolutely awful and they're like oh like try this one right here like what number do you see i'm like i see a giraffe (laughs) like okay what letter do you see i'm like seven they go how would you feel about being a culinary specialist oh my god that sounds good too though i was like are you are you kidding me like 
you we three days ago we were having a conversation about like go and like launch missiles off of a nuclear sub and then get six figures making and, a submarine sandwich yeah and now you're like <laughs> and now you're telling me like yeah go make sub sandwiches and like well i saw you know our best of the field like why are we in like private chefs to admirals i'm like i don't care like this conversation is over wow like we are done it's like i went home like emailed the air force recruiter in the next office over and i was like hi my name is chris morris i was talking to the navy this is my score on this exam what do you have for me? And like, takes 30 seconds. I get a call. He's like, Hey, this is starting to so-and-so. Why don't you, have you, curiosity, have you signed anything? I'm like, Oh, jeez. I was like, it's a great question, isn't it? No, he's like, make sure I haven't signed a military contract. I'm like, no, I haven't signed anything. He's like, why don't you come down to my office and let's have a conversation. So I went down, we talked about some options. I wound up signing up to be a cryptologic linguist, which then I had to take like the hardest test I've ever taken in my life. The, the D lab. Defense language aptitude barrier. Holy crap, that sounds impressive, Chris. <coughs> yeah, and so it basically measures your ability to learn foreign languages. Wow. And, like, it's on an... It's funny. Like, our military, we give them, you know, so much hell for spending money on all these things. Like, this test is administered on, like, a cassette tape. And, like, that... If you watch, like, the old, like, police movies from the yeah. 70s, and they have, like, that tape recorder, I'm pretty sure they had that tape recorder to administer this exam. Oh, my gosh. And, like... There, there was like one section that was like, I don't remember what it was, but the third was like recognizing like speech patterns. Uh-huh. And so they would like say four things in Arabic and you had to figure out which one had a different, like, which was different. Yeah. Which one had a, like a different accent pattern. And a lot of these times these things got into like tertiary accents. Yeah. And so, and the thing is, this thing is all on tape. So they ask the question once and then they move on. Like, there is no waiting and going back for the class. Right. Like, it's very much like this question, A, this, B, this, C, this, D, this. Question 35. Like, right. you right. need to get it right the first try. And then the last section, they literally teach you a made-up language on the spot with English as a base. So they'll be like, all articles will now be a word that starts with C. Okay. And they'd be like, how would you say this sentence in this new language? Or they'd be like, now, like the role of like the, like the verb will now come after the noun. Yeah, and they would keep compounding these rules on, and like making it more advanced to like go through this like made up language, and like you literally, I just had to keep interpreting, and I wound up scoring like the highest that I know of. Like I met I met a lot of other linguists, so you the max score on that was a one forty six. Yeah, and you had to score a minimum of a hundred to qualify. Like. And all the languages were based into into categories essentially. Like your your level ones, your you know, Italian, your French, your Spanish. Right. Um, level two is like your, your Russian, like your Cyrillic kind of languages. Uh, cat three or cat three was Russian because it was all like on its own. Right. And there was cat four, which was Japanese, Korean, Chinese, Chinese and right, Arabic. Yeah. And then the next year they were introducing cat five. What is that? Korean. Oh, Korean. Like nice. it was just like the like the language that was like considered the hardest like training for that was 72 weeks no kidding yeah and so like i was all set to like go and be like this korean translator and then like blew out my knees how did you do that you're not you're making well you're listening to language how did you blow out your knee uh yeah so you're still in the military so you still have to be like physically fit and be able to go into like a combat zone oh Wait, like, so you went into a combat zone? No, I never, okay. I never made you it. You got to tr- train to do it, though. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, like, you still have to pass, like, the, the basic military training, which I got to have one of my favorite jobs ever. Yeah. When I was my short stint in the military, I got to yell at people. Good. The government Good. paid me for it. it sounds pretty, yeah. pretty cush. Oh, yeah. Job, yeah. It, was, it was pretty <laughs> rad. And I get to yell at, like, 18 year old kids, and, like, they can't yell back. Oh, man. <laughs> That's the thing that a lot of people don't know. It's like, when you, when you show up to the Air Force, and you're like 18 and dumb and you signed your life away and you're rolling up on your bus and this dude gets on his bus and like takes a hat off and tells you in a certain number of words that you need to get off of that bus and you need to get lined up and you need to do it now. Wow. Those weren't actual um, TIs or training instructors yeah. or like drill sergeants as most people would know. Like those were actually people like me that had busted knees. No shit. Yeah. It was a detail called night bagging. It was like the premier detail that's amazing because like you got so many privileges because when you're in medical hold you're still in a military standard Mm. because you're there with people that just like you know rolled their ankle right and like 
they're going to rehab it for two weeks and they're going to get right back into it and they're going to graduate and go off to tech school. Yeah. Like with me, like it was called RTT or return to training. And so like, you're still in this military standard, like no matter what. But so they would use some of us to do like the grunt work there. So like yeah. we, I would literally, I actually worked out to be the lead nightbagger. So like there was always like the one guy and then he picked his crew. Yeah. Like the senior guys got to stay later and so on and so forth. And you could extort the 18-year-olds for cigarettes and things. We'd, it's like prison. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> yeah, like we literally, I, I remember my speech to this day. Like I'd get on the bus and like you just have like all these kids just scared and like take my hat off. And like, He's oh. at, you're actually taking your hat off too. This, oh, is, yeah. like, this is muscle memory. I like yeah. this. Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> like you stuff it down in your, your leg with your cover. And you're just like, on behalf of Brigadier General Jones and the 37th Training Wing, allow me to be the first one to welcome you to Lackland Air Force Base. And I said it this, in this exact pitch. Like, you are here to begin basic military training. What this means is you've got about 30 seconds to get your crap in your left hand and get the hell off my bus. <laughs> and then I would just, 30, 29, 26, you're on my time now. The death metal vocals come back, don't yeah, they? they? they never made it out in under 30 seconds. Never? <laughs> well, my 30 seconds. I see, I see. Okay. <laughs> well, so yeah. how long was that total stay then in the Air Force for you? Uh, I think it was there about six months. Discharge, honorably discharge, is that what they call it? Uh, no, I got what's called an ELS or entry-level separation, I which see. is a... <laughs> Thanks for trying. Oh, good luck and have fun. Gold star. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here's your, here's your participation. <laughs> and still at this point, you're are you 21 yet? Yeah, I was. I was 22 at the time. Okay, so you had at this point kind of been introduced to alcohol finally. Yeah, in in a way that where you could kind of drink as much as you wanted or as little and kind of explore it. <coughs> yeah, I drank a lot of Shiner. Shiner. Yeah. Yeah, cause I turned 21 back in like my my band days. Yeah. So like I have my like official band wristband, right. and so I drink at the bar. Well, so real quick tangent before we talk, I think what is probably your, your introduction and kind of going back into the service industry, but in a different capacity, you made it to a degree in the Philippines. Did that make you ever want to be a big rock star again? Because one of the stories we were talking about before was, and I think this should be the bar story that you never tell on the record, <laughs> even though I think it's a brilliant story. Uh. I don't know that I ever, like, once I started doing it, because, like, I always have, like, these grandiose dreams, but I always, like, hyper-specialize, so I knew I was never going to be, like, this big, giant rock star. I just wanted to, like, make it enough that, like, I could do that as a career. And then, like, once the whole thing with, like, Testament and that tour fell through, I kind of, like, I started researching more and more, and I'm like, oh, man, like, these guys who are, like, the singers for these bands that I like really adore like the the biggest one that i remember is the lead singer of uh of agalock mm. the professor at oregon state oh wow or like i want to say at the time uh glenn from deicide still had a day job yeah like these guys well milo right he was he was yeah. working for 3m i think in a chemistry lab yeah exactly like these guys all still had day jobs and like they would just take three months off the tour yeah and i'm like i should have a day job so i actually facilitate these things if i want to do it again it makes some sense it's about that balance yeah but this career, you know, while we're here today and you're here in town for bourbon, bluegrass, and blue, excuse me, bourbon, bluegrass, and barbecue, I mix the B's up, but I'm just called B3. Then I don't have to give it any order. Yeah. This is what you first said. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're like, oh, barbecue, bourbon, blue. I didn't know it was called that either. That's just, they. that's how they sent it to me in the yeah. email. It was like the B3 sponsorship doc. I'm like, See, that's actually much easier. Way, way easier. Yeah, it's great. So B3. Okay. So we're here. You're going to get a... Later this evening, we'll both be eating some barbecue, drinking some bourbon, which is yeah. great. But this this now wildly decorated career has hit a fever pitch. Your name is popping up everywhere now. I saw it in the, you know, like I was talking about earlier, Bartender of the Year with Heaven Hill, which yeah. is rad. I mean, great products there. Most imaginative bartender with Bacardi and stuff. So you got a lot of great things going on. But where, where did booze become this thing that you became passionate about? Um, it really got started like back in my wine days. Mm. So I was working as an assistant sommelier under Eric Hastings at Eddie V's out in city center. Mm. And this is when we first discovered that things like corpse survivor number twos were a cocktail. Yeah. Like I, I remember, uh, we made those in the bar and we, we all tasted We're like, Oh, this is a great thing. And obviously we're in like a corporate restaurant like out on the west side. So yeah. they're all they put it on the menu as a town and country, which is the street we were on. Oh jeez. So like nobody's gonna buy it if you call it a corpse survivor. And like I started like digging into it. I found the whole corpse survivor family. Yeah. And I one, so, I don't like number one as much. 
Two is far superior, I think. Number one's... It, it has some balance issues. Yes. And, like, it do, it's not really... it. It's not like a corpse survivor. It's not a hangover drink. No. Like, it's the kind of thing, like, I drink to become a corpse. Like, ah. It's an unreviver, right? <laughs> and, like, then number three was just super weird. But I went on a challenge, and I, like, I told my boss, I'm going to serve all three corpse survivors, and I'm going to call them corpse survivors. Nice. And, and over the course of a week, I got somebody to buy number one, number two, and number three. That's amazing. Yeah, like I don't like being told I can't do things. I can so tell. I, 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 t- I take them as as personal challenges. Punk a lot kids, of time. they often can't be put in a corner. <coughs> they refuse. Yeah, like we had uh, we had just gotten our first bottle of Yamazaki Twelve. Oh, nice. Back when it was like affordable. Sure. And like first in this in, in Texas, and we got we got a bottle of Fernet. Mm. And like like we all taste this Fernet, and like you never forget that first shot for better or for worse. And I'm just like, what on earth is going on here? And yeah. Like, there were night like we just go to Anvil because like Anvil had just recently opened at that time. Like we had guys eventually that were working with us that wound up like going on and having illustrious careers with those guys. And so like that was sort of like seeing that spirits was more than just like flavored martini. Yeah. Like I've drank a bunch of like really awful stuff. Sure. We all my, my early days, like double goose white Russian. Yeah, Let's there you go. go. And <laughs> the golden goose. Yeah. Or when I, when I got my first, first industry job, I was waiting tables at Olive Garden before they broke up with me. <laughs> that, that's how I got fired. Chris, no more breadsticks for fuck's sake. Well, it, it wasn't even that. It no, was... I'm just saying that's my favorite part of the whole, <laughs> the whole spot. Yeah, like my manager sits me down when, one day and she's like, Chris, um, I think it's just going to be better if we go our separate ways. And I'm just <laughs> like, well, who gets to keep the dog? <laughs> like, like, what's actually going on here? And I was like, whatever. I had a job in a week, and that later like wound up like haunting me. And I was like, I had rage quit a job, like put in my two weeks with no plan. So I'm like scattering, like yeah. running around. I like put in my application at Capital Grill, and they're like, "Have you ever been terminated from a Darden property?" I'm like, "Wow, that's a specific question." Well, I mean, it's in it's in their parent company. I know, but still. And I was like, as a matter of fact, I have. But like, this was totally six years ago, and like, it was mutual. Feeling is mutual. Yeah, it's it's like it's. It, <laughs> It's okay. I think we're friends on Facebook now, but yeah, that's a. Cr- I did not. I did not get the job at Capital Grill. Do you <laughs> find that like the the world of spirits when you first introduced to it, in my opinion, anyway, is it seems pretty topical, pretty superficial. You talk about double goose and white, white Russian. You don't really understand the capacity, the terroir, all these fancy kind of terms. How culturally relevant spirits really are. Yeah, Fernet, you know, in in its time and place, and in terms of the culture, the bartender community and stuff, but. For you, was there a single cocktail? Now we could maybe it was the corpse survivor, but something that you realized that spirits are not only something you experience in a sensory way, but they're tied to a time and place. It brings you <coughs> almost back to your AP European history class. Um, I always had that, and it came from the the wine side. Mm. Like being a sommelier is the reason that I'm good at bartending. Yeah, um, because I, I really, really found. Uh, my passion uh, when I was working in the steakhouse scene. My my dad always told me growing up, if somebody does the same job as you mm. and they make more money, figure out why. Great point. And then do what they do. Yeah. And I was like, that's actually really sage advice. Well, it's very comp- that's a great competitive yeah. analysis. Right? And so it's like, all I, about the industry. Yeah. And so I was working at this place and I found the guy who made the most money. And I realized that he had this stuff called wine on all of his tables, and I had beer on all of mine. And like Silver Oak cost a shitload more than Coors Light. Right. For Good profit. Yeah, spoiler margin. alert, right? Like, <laughs> so I was like, okay, I got to learn how to sell this wine thing. And then I wound up leaving that job, going to a steakhouse, and like we had to take mandatory wine training. And I found, and in those days, like anything you needed was like on the bottle. Like you could literally walk up and you're like, this is your, you don't even have to know. You're like, right. This is your Chateau So-and-So Cabernet Sauvignon 20, 2012 from Mendoza. And you look like you know what you're doing. Right. There, there was a bottle in our cellar of Oren Swift Prisoner, that fantastic like Goya piece as, as the print. Mm. And I picked it up. I'm like, there's no information on this. I turn it around, and it says red wine. I'm like, well, wow. what does that mean? Like, well, when I dig it to the table, I'm supposed to, like, say what the grapes are, right? Yeah. Like, that's how this wine service thing works. So I went home, and I started researching this wine, and I found the story of Dave Finney, who makes it. And he was going to college in, like, Arizona and convinced, like, 
his professor to let him grow grapes so he could try making wine. And then he took his summer and went up to Napa and worked on like the like night crew, yeah. like harvesting grapes. Like in his own words, he was the only white guy on an all Mexican night crew. Yeah. And when I started researching it, he actually had a Sauvignon Blanc that he was doing where he was donating all his proceeds back to a charity called Puertas Abiertas, Open Doors. Mm -hmm. And it was all about providing medical assistance to these vineyard workers and many of them being undocumented and just up here like grinding and doing this really strenuous physical labor and just trying to make a living for their families back in Mexico. Like they come up for the season and then go back. And I was like, holy shit, like there are humans that make these things. Like there are stories behind all of this. And like that's when it really clicked that like, it's my job now to find these stories and tell these stories. Yeah. And I've probably put Dave's kids through college. I've sold a lot of Orrin Swift over the years. That's amazing. Like, yeah, like when you're like, when you tell people a story like that, like they can't say no to the wine. Yeah. And so that's really like where the, the fire came from. And also like being a sommelier, like one note descriptors are never enough. Like mm-hmm. you, the curiosity just goes so far beyond because you're like, okay, this tastes like apples. You're like, great. Is it a green apple? Is it a red apple? Right. Is it underripe? Is it overripe? Is it just ripe enough? I mean, is it the Goldilocks of apples? Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> like you just are constantly asking and pushing forward. Uh, that's one thing I find with a lot of bartenders. Like they'll taste like a sherry and they're like, okay, like this tastes like this. And they never ask it, like, why does this taste like this? Right. So I think that's where like being a sommelier like really came in. It, and it taught me to always dig deeper. Find out where it came from. Find out why it exists. Right. Find out why it tastes the way it does, and like that just that then helps you figure out what things you can you can put with it. And you're like then you're telling stories yeah. through drinks. You're telling stories of the people who make these things. Well, so here's an interesting question for you that's going to catch you off guard, or so I hope. So you've been married how long now? Uh, two years. Two years, great. So we're about in the same boat here. Yeah. And you have obviously you're a very intelligent guy, and you can find the details of things. How does that fare for you when you're arguing with your wife? Uh, she wins. <laughs> it's hard, right? You try to intellectualize things uh, I mean, like I do. We're we're actually very blessed. We don't have very many like hard arguments. Yeah. Um, just because we're we're both we're both intelligent, respectful adults. Right. And like I can tell when she's getting angry, <laughs> and she can kind of tell when like I'm boiling up. And yeah. so like if we see that, like we kind of give each other space. Like, sometimes it'll take, like, two or three days, and then, like, we'll come back and be like, hey, like, sorry, I was being kind of shitty. Right. Like, we, we've never had, like, a full-blown, full blown like, knockdown, drag-out argument in, like, our four or five years together. That's great. That I can remember. Yeah. Really? Yeah, well. I don't like to yell either, but I will sometimes. Well, like, we're, we're very modern in a lot of ways. Like, mm-hmm. we're, like, yes, it's marriage, but in a lot of ways, like, and I, I know the word my partner, like it's a partnership. Yeah, sure. Like we're two strong, independent people that happen to love each other. Mm. But if things go south, like we don't need each other. We right. choose this life together. Sure. And so there's always like that mutual respect. Like when I talk to people, I'm like, we, we have different bank accounts. Yeah. Oh, we, I, I do like, too. you know, she had the house before I ever moved in. So mm. she still takes care of the house. And like my income pays for my bills and like all of our, you know, fun money and going out. Like right. I, I pick that up and if she ever needs money, she comes to me. Like if I ever need it, like I do, I, I absolutely, yeah. same kind of configuration yeah. for me. And, and obviously this is a tangent, but I think people just have this expectation about what marriage is like. They have this expectation about what bartending is. You know, yeah. sometimes it don't feel like a lucrative career, but the bottom line is that you make it your, your own, you make it yeah. evolved, you make it progressive. Right. And so all the stuff you're saying, you like I'm gonna owe you more whiskey because I fucking <laughs> completely agree with you, and I don't think it's wrong, and I don't apologize for it. Yeah, you know. And so, the thing we were talking about this again before the mics were on, but you had been drilling from behind the bar for a long time, working a lot of places in Houston, and now it looks like you're hitting this creative apex. You are becoming a brand on your own. You yeah. have started to so this bittersmith project is this homegrown from you is this something you created are you a partner or uh yeah so bittersmith started the whole roots of it um start when we were opening radio milano Mm -hmm. out in in city center and we had like this really great menu of like 40 cocktails 
and we had like lime bitters and absinthe bitters, yeah. and all these like beautiful things. And I went to my boss and I was like, when we were stocking up and like starting training, I was like, hey, like, do we have all these bottles? He's like, no, we, we got to make them. I'm like, well, from what I understand, bitters take a little bit of time. Sure. So do you have recipes? Like, I'll go ahead and, and get started. And he goes, no. <laughs> I was like, challenge accepted. <laughs> and so like, I, I no went, one's going to keep you down. Yeah. So I like went off on this journey of like figuring out how to make absinthe bitters and lime bitters and whatever else we were, we were doing. And they turned out like decent. They yeah. were usable. The cocktails tasted good. And so then I would start like, all right, well, if I can do that, like maybe I can make this style bitters. And like, we just always had like random jars mm-hmm. and things going and people would come in and they taste it and like, man, like you should, you should sell these. They're really good. And I was like, uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and then when we left there, we went to Hunky Dory, and a friend of mine was opening a bar called Canard. Mm-hmm. And I was like, as a, basically like an opening gift to her, I made her her own bitters. Uh, it was like super floral, like lots of Earl Grey and lavender and yeah. tarragon. And she wound up like putting it on her menu. And she was like, man, these are really good. She actually took it down to Tails in Mexico City. Uh-huh. And when she came back, she's like, uh, Hey, I worked my guest shift, uh, and I let Tristan Stevenson taste your bitters. And I'm like, like, like what? What did you just say? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, you want to know what he said? I'm like, well, obviously. She was, he said, it's, it's really refreshing to taste someone's homemade bitters that are actually fucking bitter. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And I was like, all right. Like, now there's like, these things have gone international. And people have tasted them. And they're like, yeah, they're good. I'm like, okay. So we started doing like test batches and finally figured out like the, the core lineup of flavors that we were doing. And I'm yeah. like, all right, I'm going to go sell bitters now. That's crazy. And then Bitters Meds just eventually like started evolving into a brand because then it was like, oh, I'm going to take on this consulting project and mm-hmm. then I'm going to do like this private event and I'm going to work this event with this brand. I'm like, I need like a parent thing to like tie all this together. So yeah. I just took the name and just made it from like this specialized, you know, bitters into like just sort of you know, a, a brand and an overarching, what I call, you know, a Texas cocktail company. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. So some of the services, you know, not to make this too stale, but you're out there putting your mind into things. You help people via consulting. You're yeah. creating this actual product. You doing any brand work as well? <coughs> um, I do a little bit on the side and mostly yeah. like, it'll be like co-sponsoring. Yeah, like we just yeah. did a uh, butcher's ball. Out in Brenham. Oh, cool. Okay. And I was hanging out with the guys from William Grant. And I was like, yeah, we're like, we're, we're sponsoring bourbon, bluegrass, and barbecue. They're like, hey, you want to co-sponsor uh, Butcher's Ball with us? And I'm like, yeah, sure. They're like, yeah, like, just help us come up with the cocktails. And like, just feature your bitters. Yeah. And like, just come out and like, make it for people. I that's was like, amazing. Okay. Like, yeah, that's a thing. And like, I got in with them. and like, yeah, we're going to keep you on like retainer for like consulting work. But as far as like ambassadorship or anything like that, I haven't gotten into that side. Well, it feels um, like you're the brand right now. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah. the things that you're creating and your knowledge and your insight, you can help spread your own brand. The bitters are a great conduit yeah. for that, you know? So yeah, you might I mean, be like, eclipsed by a much larger brand, depending. Yeah, like where I'm at right now, like it's just it's just kind of like sitting back and like seeing what comes my way. Like I'm completely open to brand work. Yeah. Like if I find the right fit. Because mm. I'll never be the guy that can go out and sell something that like I don't fully 100% believe in. Yeah. It's like, if you're like, I have to be die hard on your entire portfolio sure. and I have to love it. And if I love it, I'll sell it and I'll go out there and I'll spread the word. But if I'm like iffy on something, like mm. it shows, like it 100% does like that passion isn't there. And so like, if that opportunity comes along with the right, right brand, then like, yeah, like let's go, let's, yeah. let's have some fun. But we just haven't found the right match right now. It's interesting how the. And it, I wouldn't say it was this pursuit of notoriety for you in terms of bands, but when you're out there performing, there's a certain level of high, there's a certain level of creative exchange. It's something that's yeah, it's quite addictive, actually, to some degree, right? And it feels like you have parlayed that ability to compose, the ability to perform, and you've formed it into this nice project and consulting business via some bidders and via. So in other words, what I'm saying, Chris, is you've returned to the the stage man it really feels that well no it it very much is like um a really eye-opening experience for me was my first ever cocktail competition um so it sounds funny to say now when i first started bartending i hated competitions i thought they were stupid yeah 
And I told people all the time, the only competition I want to win is I want you in my bar drinking my drinks and give me money sure. to do so. That's the punk ideology is yeah. like absence like, of ego. Right? Yeah, we, yeah. We, have, we have a goods and services relationship mm-hmm. and I want you to come to my bar and exercise that relationship and that's the only competition I care about. Right. And so my boss at the time came up to me and he's like, hey, there's this Bombay Sapphire competition I want you to do because um, I really think you should do one. He's like, you make the cocktail, they come to, they come to the bar, they judge you and they'll give you actually a Cocktail Kingdom gift card. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm a whore, so sure. yeah. Give me money, I'll make you a drink. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so I get the email, and it's like, hey, thanks for enrolling in Bombay Sapphire, most imaginative bartender. I was like, oh shit, this is a real competition. <laughs> like a friend of mine had gone to nationals the the year before, yeah. Leslie Ross, and like I knew the work she put in. I'm like, oh, I have to like actually make a good drink and try. I was like, all right, so I come up with something, and like. I wind up qualifying for regionals. Yeah. Like one of only two people in Houston. And like, we, there are only six from Texas at the time. And I was like, oh, now I really got to try. Right. And so like I had somebody teach me like IBA rules, which no one uses anymore. Thank God. Cause yeah. they're like super archaic. Um, so like I wind up going and I have like, by m- what I know now, like this absolute like bomb, terrible uh. thing. Like I, in IBA, like time didn't start until you touched a bar tool. Mm-hmm. So I literally spent five minutes telling the whole story of the cocktail and then spending seven minutes making the drink in absolute silence. Just being like cinnamon scented Amaro Montenegro, a half ounce per cocktail. And then just like pouring all super weird and formal. Um, And then a couple spots after me, I got to watch Justin Lavenue. Oh, Justin. Yeah. Integrating it, the narrative. And and like, I just watched this guy telling the story and doing these beautiful motions. And I'm like, (laughs) <laughs> this has like this is performance art that's right but with bartending and cocktails as a medium that's the instrument yeah. and that was the year that he went on and won national mm-hmm. and what from what people told me like it, it was really like me and him in the very end like they're the very clear top two best drinks and like he just made it through because like his presentation was so amazing got a charm story, right? and he yeah. was spot on and he was charming and he's the most beautiful man i've ever seen yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah, he's pretty. I'll tell. I'm gonna tell you a story about him when we get off the mic. <laughs> but yeah, so like, we get through with that. And I'm like, and I, I see him go on a win. I'm like, man, I just barely lost to this guy that like won nationals. Like, right. all right, maybe I can do this thing, and maybe I can get like my creative and like competitive fix with this because I can learn to do performance. Like, right. I was a musician. Like, this is what I was born to do. Of course, and, you know how to compose. I yeah, mean, all the skills it, are there. And it took like a, a good another year before I finally like won one. And then like I just kept winning and had like the best year ever. And like I've been very blessed and, and very lucky. But that's yeah. where the spark all kind of started was watching Justin Lavenue like and understanding that like the cocktail is the centerpiece to a greater art yeah. that we're doing. That's amazing. And I feel it's very symbolic. And he, he's a lovely guy and he does embody some of that the charisma and, and just oh, yeah. the nuance and the 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 intention of delivery because yeah. sometimes some people forget like, these competitions are weird because it's almost like auditioning for a role in a movie oh yeah you know it is very similar to that well so we're gonna you know we're gonna hang out more this evening at the b3 event and we're sipping some balvany 21 i don't know i just had the bottle wingo was just in i figured it was a good thing to share with you oh, it's, a, it's a great whiskey it's one of my favorites not a bad one at all no it doesn't suck and so i've got really one more question for you these this one, I'm, I don't know how you're going to answer that. But I'm going to add a little caveat because I know you're a whiskey guy. I know you smoke cigars a bit too. Take some yeah. good pictures of that and stuff. So let's say the place doesn't matter. So you're at any bar in the world and you're sipping a whiskey. We'll make it a bourbon so I don't have to make this too confusing. You're sipping a bourbon and you're talking and having a conversation with anybody, living or deceased. One, what bourbon are you in the mood for to sip? And two, who would you love had that conversation with. Man, what bourbon are we sipping? You, you complicated this one so much. I thought that was easier because if I left it for whiskey, Jesus, that'd be difficult. Yeah, it'd be pretty difficult. I'm not going to lie. Um, Man, I don't know what bourbon it would be. It would probably be, be like a like an older Willet. Mm, okay, yeah. Like, what, like back in the, like their their NDP days. Like yeah. some of those like 15, 20 year Willets just had like this beautiful, like some of their honey barrels were just like so good. Oh man. Yeah. It's brilliant stuff. 
And that's then, good. No, that makes me envious because I don't have a bottle, so I have to go find <laughs> one now. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm much more like sort of a malt whiskey guy, so mm-hmm. that was definitely kind of wrenching the plans. But as far as like a person, yeah, I'd have to go Teller from Tell- Penn and Teller. Penn and Te- really? Like, think about it. Like, the dude's like, <laughs> like he's just uh, like that's fair. He's yes. this intense skeptic, right? And he's like lived and breathed like downtown dirty Las Vegas for like over 30 years. Like sure. that dude has some stories to tell. Yeah. But then you get like the irony of like teller, like never talking. And like, I, I, I guarantee you having a conversation with that guy would be like insane. That's an, I've never thought about talking to someone who just doesn't talk. That's a, ama- yeah. that's a really brilliant way to look at it. I've never thought about it. Who's the famous Mar- my Marcel Marceau. Is that right? Yeah. He's, yeah. He's, but yeah so, what he talking? What he talking Or like, or maybe you use this to like do the greater good of the universe. And like, what about like DB Cooper? Solve oh, it. if you can find him, right? Well, and in your theoretical example, I found him. I invited him to a bar. I'm drinking bourbon. So oh, that's a great point. Yeah, or like Jack the Ripper. Like, yeah. let's let's solve some mysteries and like. You're using this as a as a means to improve history, Chris. This is far too insightful for me. I mean, i i once <laughs> I once used drinking to solve a murder case. So. Really? Yeah. Um, that happened this year. Uh, we had gone out with some friends, um, like this lovely Saint Germain dinner. And we we're hanging out, having some drinks later. <clears throat> and I'm headed on the way home. I come to this light, and this dude tears through a red and like t-bones me, puts me up on this embankment. Uh huh. And I'm like, oh god! And like, I get out of my car. And I'm like, all right, my my car is in really bad shape. And right. like, there were, luckily there was a cop who kind of like saw the thing happen. So he immediately gets off and turns around. And like, before long, I realize no one's talked to me yet. It's been about like ten minutes. Wow! So eventually, this cop comes up. He's like, you know, gets my information. He's like, we'll be right with you. He's like, it's a little complicated. I'm like, okay. Whoa! And the next guy comes up. He's like, hey, man, I know it's been a while. I um, just want to let you know this is an active scene for two different investigations. I'm like, that sounds really serious. Holy shit. So you do you, homie. And like the next cop finally comes up. because like There's like four squad cars on the scene because they're having to shut down like basically a feeder road. Yeah. And he's like, Mr. Morris. I'm like, yes, sir. He goes, I have some good news. I have some bad news. I was like, all right, hit me. He goes, well, the bad news is you were in an accident. I'm like, so that's why my car is at a 45 degree angle. That explains it. Right. He goes, the good news is you might have just helped solve a murder investigation. I was like, what? He's like, uh, yeah, these guys actually had a, a gun in the car. He's like, and a pretty big one. It was an SKS. Oh, jeez. I was like, really? He's like, yeah. Uh, the driver took off and tried to ditch it around the corner because when the airbag went off, it broke the stock off, which <gasps> thankfully, because that meant they couldn't shoot me. That's right. So the, Apparently, like they had just done a drive-by like 10 minutes ago and were like fleeing the area Holy and serendipitously like hit me so that's a crazy roundabout way to solve a murder yeah basically an alcoholic batman that's a, that's a book that needs, <laughs> that needs writing no that's a it's a brilliant way to frame it i'm glad that we connected i'm glad that you wanted to sit down and chat i'm yeah. glad you kind of trekked off from houston to do the b3 b3 thing tonight and sipping whiskey with you we're gonna have to do more of it man it's yeah. been it's been really good chatting about all this stuff and the death metal and <laughs> i just you know i saw this picture i can't really soon forget it <laughs> the devil luck in all of its glory man. yeah there's a lot of people that can't forget it <laughs> <laughs> well it's been a brilliant privilege chatting with you and we will chat even more as time goes on chris thank yeah. you so much for sitting down man yeah thanks man thank you well there we have it mr chris morris what do you guys think of the houston native he's left quite the impact on the scene cocktail scene the music scene the devil lock scene so many different things that chris is interested in and it's great to hear we talk about it just a little bit in this chat, the Bacardi Legacy Tournament Tour de Force, and he actually is now a national finalist in the competition with his Regalo drink, which is 1.5 ounces of Bacardi Carta Blanca, one ounce of mango nectar, half ounce of simple syrup, three to four medium basil leaves, and one and a half ounce champagne. It sounds like a delicious, delicious drink. It's a bit cold here in Austin at the moment, but I think I could still use one of these fine cocktails so chris thanks so much for trekking up to austin sharing some bitters and chatting about your life and thank you for listening to show to view with mike g it's 2018 just got back from the san antonio cocktail conference just released a new record things are looking optimistic things are looking great and i hope 
we can all keep listening here together. So no matter how far you've made it in the Californication Amazon Prime binge, or if you're thinking, I don't know if the Phantom Thread's going to live up to Paul Thomas Anderson's previous works, please keep dancing.